You like the Just Baseball show and want to make your own? Let me tell you about Anchor. It's free. There's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Now you can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never seen before. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and much more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Friday, July 16th. This is the Just Baseball Show. And <laughs> like, man, dude, we just talked to Bob Costas. <laughs> it was so awesome. I mean, you just hear the voice and you feel like you're in the middle of a game. You just hear you the really voice. You really feel like you're in I the know middle who that of a is. game. <laughs> you, you feel like, I'm like, am I up to bat right now? I'm like, what's going on? It, it, it like surrounds you. And he was just so awesome. And at the beginning, I even said I was a bit nervous and then he gave us a comment twice about how we were well-prepared. I mean, I've been well-prepared. I've been preparing for this interview for a while now, and uh, it was just awesome. It was such a fun conversation. Pump up your own tires, man. Uh, great news about this episode <laughs> is there's no baseball to talk about. The All-Star game already happened, so we can kind of just get right into the interview. But you were at the Home Run Derby. Pete Alonso, really good at hitting baseballs. The most electric sporting event I've ever been to. And I was at game two of the World Series, Red Sox, Dodgers. What an amazing experience at Fenway. But 50, 60,000 people at Coors Field, electric. Pete Alonso was bopping to the music, hitting home run after home run. Juan Soto versus Otani, three home runs to win it. It's all three. And that's just a Juan Soto thing, dude. And Otani, yeah, he didn't do that great. But the story of the home run derby was that the BP pitchers, there was like four bad ones. Joey Gallows was not that good. Matt Olson's was not that good. How about Pete Alonso's joust? Yeah, Pete Alonso got hit. Juan Soto's face at a lefty. And is he better against lefties? Like, I I, I don't understand that. No, I mean, Soto going with a lefty-lefty matchup. And then Dave Joust, I think is his name. Dave Joust just delivering BBs (laughs) to Pete Alonso's wheelhouse. Oh, he was the best BP thrower ever. It was so perfect and soft. It seemed like Otani's guy was trying to jam him in and Gallows, I think, was throwing cutters. (laughs) The ball was moving. Like, Uh, what are we doing here? I don't know. Loft it up. Let him hit jacks. Wow. So we so electric. You know, Pete, we we talk all the time about the modern game. And we just watched the all-star game where we had 22-year-olds Vladdy Jr. and Fernando Tatis in the lineup. We had Shohei Otani doing new things. The biggest names in the all-star game this year in the home run derby are the new names. And baseball, the biggest names are the new names, aside from an ailing Mike Trout right now, who hopefully is coming back in just a couple of weeks. But this was such a great conversation 
to go back a little bit, and Bob brought up a great point. This is, we're calling him Bob now, no biggie. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Bob brought up a great point. This is the sport that relies most on the historical significance of the game and comparing 100%. it to prior eras. Absolutely. 100% the nostalgic factor of baseball yeah. is what may, makes baseball so great. When you go to a stadium, you always feel like that little kid. Football and basketball, I don't know if I ever really felt that. Maybe it's just because I didn't, pl- I mean, I played them all as kids, but baseball was always that, like, I'm going to the ballpark with my dad. Right. And I feel like asking him those sort of questions, it really just comes out. I mean, his voice, it just, it felt like just baseball. Let's just go there. Bob Costas, <laughs> here you go. So I sat down and I tried to think of this frilly introduction for our guest today, but then I realized I could just say his name and that could be good. It's Bob Costas. We have Bob (laughs) Costas on uh, this episode of the Just Baseball Show. Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about the game that I know you love. Yeah, I sure do. Baseball's always been my favorite sport. Uh, I like any number of others, but baseball has always come first for me. You know, you and Vin Scully kind of in tandem were the voice of baseball for a generation. You and Marv Albert in tandem were the voice of basketball for a generation, too. So before we get into the baseball and Bob Costa's conversation, I know Marv just wrapped up an unbelievably storied career calling basketball. And yeah. you guys are, are Syracuse alums. Uh, what is, you know, your life experience like with Marv Albert? And, and what does it mean to see that ovation for him at the end? Well, it's so well-deserved. Uh, he has the combination of local legendary status on the radio with the Knicks, and then, of course, that long network run during one of the greatest NBA eras, the NBA of the 90s on NBC. There have been other great basketball announcers. Chick Hearn comes immediately to mind in his long tenure with the Lakers, but Chick did not have the kind of network presence that Marv had. So the combination of excellence and distinctiveness of style and broad exposure nationwide, that's what puts Marv at the very top of the pyramid with no disrespect to anyone else. Yeah, he's a Syracuse guy. He and Marty Glickman are among the first prominent voices. There's a handful, as you know, uh, outside sports like Ted Koppel and Dick Clark. Uh, And there were some that weren't as well-known nationally, like Andy Musser, who had a successful career in Philadelphia. And Dick Stockton was ahead of me after Marv, but ahead of me, as was Len Berman. And then sometime around the late 70s, early 80s, uh, the gates opened wide. And now I can't even keep track of how many of us are are all over the sports broadcasting landscape. It's almost 50-50 yeah. that it's as likely that a guy is a Syracuse person than is not a Syracuse person if you just talk about a broadcaster who's out there now. Yeah, absolutely. And Bob, so thank you so much for coming. And this is the biggest interview in all my 23 years of life and most likely will be the biggest one I ever do. I mean, you're Bob freaking Costas. Can it even get any bigger? And don't, don't limit yourself. You're 23 (laughs) years old. If you want to say that this is the high point and everything else is downhill from here, you've really cast for yourself a very gloomy future. Well, I hope not, but you're Bob freaking Costas. So I feel like it warrants that. And of yeah, course, last time I checked, I was, yeah. yeah. And of course, I'm a bit starstruck and a bit nervous. Was there an interview when you were just coming up, maybe in Syracuse, that made you feel those similar type of butterflies? You know, when I was at 
WSYR, then the NBC affiliate in Syracuse. During my senior year at the university, uh, I was also kind of moonlighting uh, at WSYR radio and television. I did minor league hockey for them on the radio and occasionally filled in on sports and even the weather on the weekends. So in the summer of 1974, Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford were both inducted into the Hall of Fame. Obviously, Cooperstown, not that far from Syracuse. And I convinced Joel Marinas, who was the sports director at Channel 3, that I should go and cover the induction. And I happened to know someone, a restaurateur from Syracuse, who owned a piece of the Syracuse Blazers, the team I called games for, and who was friendly with Mickey Mantle. I asked him if he could hook me up for an interview with Mickey. And he did. And I still have still pictures of me uh, in a wide lapel 1974-style sport coat, interviewing both Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford on that day. And I was very nervous and very starstruck. But since I knew so much about that era's Yankees, that's the team I grew up with as a kid, I wasn't fumbling around for questions, and I did okay. Fast forward, there might be others that I could cite, but fast forward uh, almost 20 years into the early 1990s, and I'm doing the late-night talk show, non-sports show, that I did following Johnny Carson and David Letterman on NBC. That was the lineup in the late 80s and early 90s, Carson, Letterman, and then my little show at 1.30 in the morning. Pretty legendary. (laughs) Pretty legendary. it had it was pretty good, yeah. yeah, and and so it had a single guest, um, and on this particular night, and we had many famous and very accomplished people as guests across a wide spectrum of disciplines: music and acting and directing and literary figures and political figures and the occasional sports figure. Uh, so there were a lot of big names, but. When Paul McCartney came in for an interview, wow. this was, I think, 1991, and he's much more accessible now, as are many people. But at that time, he had not done an American television interview of any length in a decade. And so here's Paul McCartney, uh, who had to come in. I, you know, It was only a decade since John Lennon had been shot, and he had to have more security than the average famous guest would have to have. In fact, he was listed at NBC security as Rodney Dangerfield when, (laughs) when he came in. Um, so here I am sitting across from Paul McCartney and all I can think of, I guess I'm 39 or 40 years old at that time. I'm just thinking of myself as at age 11, sitting on the carpet in my parents' living room in front of a black and white television set, watching Paul McCartney and the Beatles debut in essence to an American audience on the Ed Sullivan show. And I'm wondering whether anybody I went to grade school or high school with is watching this. And here's Bobby Costas talking to Paul McCartney. But again, preparation can take some of those butterflies away. It doesn't guarantee your best performance. But if you come in unprepared or insufficiently prepared, then you have more reason to be nervous than being starstruck will create. So was I starstruck? Yeah even though I was a fairly established broadcaster and McCartney himself was aware of the program, uh, which was one of the reasons why he agreed to come on. And he could not have been more cordial, could not have been a better guest. He was just wonderful. And that put me at ease by the second or third question. It was just like two guys talking and I was, you know, pretty knowledgeable about the Beatles. Um, And so I think guests almost always respect that 
if they sense that you're asking asking them something better than the garden variety type questions, or that you're knowledgeable about their career or the issues they're interested in, then it's just natural that they're going to engage to a greater extent. So all of that fell into place. And even now, as a lot of these later programs bounce around on YouTube, I hear people tell me that they think that that was one of the best McCartney interviews they've ever seen. And I think that I'm only partly responsible for that. I hope I did a good job, but he was really mostly responsible for it because he has such an incredible story to tell. He's such a significant person and he was so, so generous and friendly and forthcoming with it that it couldn't help but be good. Yeah. And you've basically interviewed everybody. I mean, Paul McCartney being the biggest and you've been in the broadcast booth for some of the greatest games in baseball history. I mean, from the 1995 World Series where the Braves defeated the Indians in their first win for moving from Milwaukee in, 90, er, in 1966 to the 1997 World Series where Edgar Renteria walked it off to give the Marlins their first chip. And my favorite, you called Derek Jeter's last game in 2014 for the MLB Network. What do you think, what do you think is the greatest game you've ever had the honor of calling? Well, World Series games and other postseason games obviously move up several notches because of the importance of it and the size of the audience. But maybe the single greatest game was a regular season game on the NBC Game of the Week in 1984, the Cardinals at the Cubs, a beautiful Saturday afternoon at Wrigley Field, classic rivalry. They didn't even have lights at Wrigley Field yet, so every game there was an afternoon game. But this game was nationally televised at a time before you guys uh, were around when the game of the week meant something entirely different than it does now. You didn't have all the baseball games and all the highlight shows available on so many different platforms as you have now. In fact, if someone lived in a non-major league city, the one game they saw each week was that Saturday afternoon game of the week with either Vin Scully and Joe Garagiola or me and Tony Kubek. And so here's this game and the Cardinals go out in front nine to three and eventually Willie McGee would hit for the cycle in the game for the Cardinals. And Ozzie Smith made his usual handful of eye popping plays, but Ryan Sandberg of the Cubs, who was just emerging as a big star, um, had five hits that day. And the last two were game tying home runs off another future hall of famer, Bruce Souter. So the Cubs are down 9-3. They come back to 9-8. It's the bottom of the ninth. Up comes Sandberg. And to show you how different the game was then, Souter is now entering his third inning in relief. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen anymore. So Sandberg homers off of him into the left center field bleachers, ties the game 9-9. Top of the 10th, Willie McGee's double gives him the cycle, produces a run. He later scores what appears to be an insurance run, and it's 11-9. Two outs, nobody on base, bottom of the 10th inning, 3-2 pitch. Bob Denier, who bats ahead of Sandberg, draws a walk on a very close pitch. Sandberg comes up, Suter's still pitching, boom. Homers again into almost exactly the same spot in the left center field bleachers. And now the game is 11-11, and Wrigley Field is an absolute madhouse. Um, The movie The Natural had just come out, a couple of months before that in 1984. 
So the notion popped into my head that this is like the real Roy Hobbs. This isn't a book or a movie. This is actually happening happening in front of us, and it's pretty close to the level of improbable heroism that you'd find in a book or a movie. Plus, the setting itself was so classic, and it had the attention of the entire baseball world. I'm not saying that it got as big a rating as a World Series game, but on a Saturday afternoon, if the game was good enough and if the teams were interesting enough, the Saturday afternoon game of the week in the 1980s got ratings higher than many primetime shows today that are considered hits. Wow. And all the players around baseball who weren't playing in the afternoon, if they were playing a night game, they were watching that game. Yeah. The players used to call it the game of the world. When they'd see me or Tony or Vin or Joe at the batting cage on a Friday or Saturday before the game, they'd say, oh, we're the game of the world tomorrow. It was just a different context that had a different feeling. So the Cubs eventually win the game 12 to 11 in the bottom of the 11th. And that game marked um, Ryan Sandberg sort of coming out as a national figure. And it marked him as an MVP candidate. He did, in fact, win the MVP award. The Cubs, who had been lousy as they generally were at that time, had come out of nowhere to be a contender. They actually won the division and came within a game of making it to the World Series. And to this day, that game is known around Chicago as the Sandberg game. You don't have to explain what it is, the, the Sandberg game. There have been three or four documentaries about that game years and years, decades later, that I'm aware of. And even Sandberg himself uh, thinks of it as the high point of his career. And the only other game, regular season game, I can think of that has a title is the Pine Tar game from that same era where George Brett's home run was nullified and he went berserk. So that's the pine tar game. And that game at Wrigley that afternoon is the Sandberg game. And that's probably just on its merits as a game. That's probably the best game I've ever been lucky enough to call. Growing up in the Chicago area, I heard time and time again about the Sandberg game. So it's great to hear that perspective. And you know, you're right. The game has just changed a lot since then. And relievers aren't going three innings. People are hitting more home runs, all that. Um, But you were a voice for Major League Baseball and the NBA for several decades. And, and during your time involved in the association, the game shifted and globalized. I feel like baseball is getting to that point. And, you know, what kind of blew up with this all-star game is the winning pitcher was Japanese. The closing pitcher that got the save was Australian. And the game's MVP was a Dominican heritage mm-hmm. player that was born in Canada while his dad was playing there. How close are we to seeing baseball become fully globalized like the NBA came during that era of Jordan and following? Yeah, I don't know what the definition of fully globalized is, but it's taken a quantum leap in that direction. Uh, And obviously, teams are looking for the best possible talent wherever they can find it. So in that sense, that talent search is global. Uh, And the internet and advanced technology make that search a little bit easier and more comprehensive than it used to be. So I think we'll only see more and more of this sort of thing, and it's obviously a very good thing. And talking about all-time talent, I mean, one of my favorite interviews of all time is when you sat down with Tony Gwynn and Ted Williams, Mm. and you guys discussed the art and the science behind hitting the baseball back in 1995. I mean, Ted said in order to have a 400 batting average year, everything has to fall into place. I mean, Tony Gwynn in, in 1994, the year before, he hit 394, but the season ended due to that strike. 
So which goes to show that really is you have to be lucky and good. Do you see any player ever achieving that 400 mark again? And do you think it's more likely that happens or someone breaks the Cal Ripken all-time games play record? I feel like those two are just the hardest things to break in baseball. You guys are very well informed and asking very good questions. Uh, Those are both probably unattainable. In order to hit 400, you have to minimize the number of at-bats because nobody, including Ted Williams with 344 lifetime, and at one point was a 350 career hitter, nobody averages 400 for that long. As he himself said, it was 1941. Um, He would have been an all-time great player in any era, no question. But the overall quality of pitching was not as good. The game was not integrated. Uh, Fielders didn't have the same kind of gloves that they have now. Uh, There were a lot of differences. But you have to minimize minimize the number of at-bats. Nobody, no matter how good a hitter, who's getting 650 at-bats in a season is going to hit 400. Now, Tony Gwynn actually didn't walk all that much, but you can't, you have to be somebody who like Williams walked a lot. He walked over a hundred times every year. Right. Uh, so that, that takes down the, the number of official at bats. And if he gets in a groove, uh, he was able to top 400. But in addition to that, you have to get almost every break. You can't have too many line drives caught. You have to have a handful of bloopers and bleeders that wind up being base hits. But having said all that, the present circumstances in baseball work against it. We know that baseball is in the process of trying to adjust, not so that someone can hit 400, but so that the game uh, regains its natural balance and that it returns to being the more entertaining form of baseball uh, that many of us remember. But at present, pitching is so far ahead of hitting And the sophisticated shifts and analytics work against base hits. you got guys trying to hit it over the shift and out of the park because that's what analytics indicate. There's no stigma connected to the strikeout anymore. Um, So there are so many factors working against hitting 400. Um, I just can't see it happening any time in the foreseeable future. And as regards Ripken, It isn't exactly the same as load management in the NBA, but the way players are protected today against fatigue, against injury, uh, the investment, the the monetary investment in the top stars is so great that they're going to be babied rather than pushed. And even in the case of Ripken, to be truthful, in some circumstances toward the end of his run, his managers would have preferred to sit him down And he was insisting on playing and he'd earned that right. And it became an important part of, of baseball history, but I just don't see anybody forget about breaking it. I don't see anybody even approaching it. I agree. The fundamental change you're spot on with that. And the game needs to change right now. And I feel like baseball has been, I don't want to say in crisis mode, but ever since the Mitchell report came out, there's been the conversation about the game in terms of its anatomy and not necessarily about the individuals anymore. The games are too long. There's too many strikeouts, too many walks. Nobody wants to hit a double. People are standing too close to the plate. Everything Mm -hmm. about that has been the conversation and it is totally straight away from the people that are playing the game. 
over your years following and calling and being ingrained in baseball, like how has the conversation around the sport itself changed? Well, a lot of it is focused, understandably and correctly, because it's an issue. A lot of it is focused on what's wrong with the game. And that, too, is out of whack, because there's a whole lot that's right about the game. So true. There's an enormous influx of vibrant and excellent young talent, people that have a passion for the game. There's a whole lot to embrace and be interested in. Jacob DeGrom, Shohei Otani, Guerrero, whom you mentioned, Fernando Tatis Jr., and on and on. Mike Trout when he's healthy. Uh, There's no shortage of talent in baseball and no shortage of magnetic and exciting talent in baseball. Shohei Otani is one of the greatest stories ever, ever, not just in my lifetime, but in the history of baseball. He's one of the greatest stories. It's crazy. Um, So I think we ought to be able to revel in what is still appealing about baseball, but at the same time, thoughtfully address what's a little bit out of whack. Bob, you just mentioned my favorite player right now. And I, I've grown up a contrarian. My favorite player was Mark Burley. And that was <laughs> outside of Chicago. That was nobody's favorite player. But every seven seconds, just throwing it back every, every seven time. seconds. But Shohei Otani is my favorite player in baseball right now. And I think he's everybody's favorite player. Do you have a favorite player? If so, who? A favorite player in baseball right now? Right now. You know, my rooting interest is not the same. Uh, coincidentally, my favorite player of the past generation was Ichiro Suzuki. I had others who I liked, but if I had to pick one, it would have been Ichiro Suzuki because he, in his own way, was a unicorn, maybe not to the same extent that Otani is, but he was playing a throwback style of baseball in a bludgeon ball era. He was hitting the ball the other way. He was dragging bunts. Uh, He was spraying the ball all over the field. Uh, He was just a remarkable player who didn't fit the stereotype of a player of the early 2000s, which was the steroid era and all the other things mixed in. So I loved Ichiro. And right now, I mean, I don't know if he's my favorite player because, as I say, I don't have the same kind of rooting interest that I might have had when I was younger. But he's the most fascinating player Otani is. You know, you don't want to miss an Otani at bat if you can possibly see it. You don't want to miss an Otani start. The same thing is true, though, of Jacob deGrom. Back in the mid-'80s, you did not want to miss a Dwight Gooden start, not just because for a very brief period of time, and it was a damn shame that he flamed out for a variety of reasons as quickly as he did. Otherwise, he would have been a cinch for the Hall of Fame. But Gooden wasn't just incredibly great. I mean, check baseball references. I'm sure you guys have. And look at his 1985 season. That's one of the greatest pitching seasons of all time. Yeah. And while that might not have been exactly the same as the Sandy Koufax, Bob Gibson era, Gooden still threw, I think, 18 complete games and still threw close to 300 innings that season. But not only was he good, he was so beautiful to watch. You know, there's a difference between excellence and style. Sometimes you can find them in one player. You'd find it in Willie Mays or in Michael Jordan in basketball. Well, in Gooden, you had someone who was beautiful to watch and his results were also objectively excellent. Well, DeGrom is like that. You don't want to yeah. miss, you don't want to miss any Jacob DeGrom start. And what he's doing is potentially historic. Although I would say that 
compared to Gooden, while DeGrom is wonderful in every way, Gooden somehow had a, a magic about him, just yeah. in his presence on the mound during that brief period of time when he had it all working for him, um, that, that separated him. And then also, as you guys know, as knowledgeable baseball fans, um, we have to look at each achievement, no matter how great, oh, yeah. in its own context. Bob Gibson is now being, or DeGrom is now being compared to Bob Gibson, because Jacob's ERA is barely over one at the midway point, and Gibson's full ERA in 68 was 1.12. Well, good for DeGrom if he even comes close to it. But Jacob DeGrom has pitched four complete games in his whole life and two complete game shutouts. Bob Gibson started 34 games in 1968 and completed 28 of them. He threw over 300 innings. DeGrom will probably fall short of 200 innings. He yeah. threw 28 complete games and 13 complete game shutouts. Now, does that mean that, hey, that's when men were men and the game was really being <laughs> You know, if, if you ask Jacob DeGrom, it was the seventh game of the World Series, and if you ask Jacob DeGrom to pitch nine innings, he would happily do it. And yeah. if the game went to extra innings, he'd keep pitching, like Jack Morris in Game 7 in 1991. I have no doubt that DeGrom would do that. But the modern game does not allow him to do that. So these comparisons are not apples to apples, but the mere fact that Jacob deGrom is being mentioned in the same breath as Bob Gibson is an indication of the impact that he's had on the modern game. Absolutely. Bob, I love that you mentioned Ichiro. Do you remember his favorite American expression? <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the funniest clips ever. <laughs> what's the, I, don't what's know, the I don't know how we can clean this up, but <laughs> it was on HBO in, I think, 2003. Oh, say the full point, thing. We're explicit. <laughs> Ichiro, Ichiro had not done a significant sit-down in English. And we used an interpreter who was a Japanese actor. So he added dramatic flourishes uh, to his translations. And Ichiro is a very thoughtful person. You ask him a question, and he's giving you uh, a detailed and very thoughtful answer. And that's the way the whole interview went. And then we got to the last question, and I just thought I'd toss this out there. And I said, Ichiro, what is your favorite American expression? <laughs> and he took a deep breath, and for the first and only time in the interview, he spoke English. I'm sure that even by then, he understood more English than he let on, yeah. but he had not spoken English during the interview. And he waves off the interpreter, and he kind of takes a deep breath, considers what he's about to say, and he says, favorite American expression, August in Kansas City, it's hotter than two rats in a bleeping wool sock. <laughs> but he didn't say bleeping. Didn't and say it was bleeping. HBO, so we didn't bleep it. Yeah. We, we, we played it, and everybody cracked up, the, the cameraman, me, and so there's like 20, 30 seconds of just sustained laughter. And Ichiro is sitting there quite proud of himself because he's made everybody laugh. And he's looking around the room beaming, you know, and he's laughing himself. And then when the laughter subsides, he looks back at me and he goes, I have bad teammates. <laughs> like, like they put him up to this. And then what I told him after that, not on camera, is Ichiro, there's no such expression as that. <laughs> I thought up. he would say something like, you know, whatever was, was, you know, kind of in the atmosphere at the time, what up dog or something, right. you know, he said, it gives me this thing instead. I'm like, Ichiro, there's no expression like that. <laughs> that was amazing. And 
Bob, I, I got to ask you about the sticky stuff. I mean, you've yeah. been around for pretty much every scandal involved in baseball over the years. How would you kind of compare the steroid era for hitters and the st- sticky substance scandal for pitchers? Well, the steroid era um, actually poisoned the record books. Yeah. Uh, the sticky stuff has certainly had an effect on the game. And they've been wise to crack down on it. And we see that it's already had a significant effect. So that shows that baseball is willing to be proactive about this. And what Rob Manfred said a few days ago uh, at the All-Star Game in his press conference indicates that he is willing to go further, maybe uh, legislating against shifts and other things, um, perhaps considering reducing the number of pitchers on a roster, which might change the dynamic between pitchers and hitters. Baseball is aware that it isn't just competitive balance that has to be restored, but that this is also a business and it's an entertainment product and they have to do what is necessary to realign it with how most people would like to see baseball. Most fans would like to see baseball played. The difference between what's happening now, even as DeGrom flirts with Gibson's full season record and we're seeing record numbers of no hitters, None of the most hallowed records in baseball are threatened. But because of steroids, the single-season record of Roger Maris and the career home run record of Henry Aaron were both surpassed. Statistically, they were surpassed. And that matters because baseball is the sport that is most dependent upon records and most dependent upon generational comparisons, as tricky as those comparisons may be. And the steroid era blew a lot of that stuff up. And it isn't just the record holders. Um, It's look at the home run list. When my guy, Mickey Mantle retired in 19, after the 1968 season, he had 536 home runs. He was third on the all time list. Now I don't know where he is. 18th, 20th, you know, a lot of guys that weren't as good as Frank Robinson have more home runs than Frank Robinson. Mm-hmm. You know, the, yeah. th- those aren't the records. So we don't focus on that as much, but it kind of distorts, you know, the list doesn't mean what it once meant. 500 used to be a, a huge achievement. Now it's a ho-hum achievement. So that to me, maybe it's a generational thing because it impacted the historical standing of so many players that I grew up watching, but I think that had a greater impact. And I saw your interview with CBS Sports, and admittedly, it's a bit dated coming back from 2014. But you said you said if you had a Hall of Fame vote that you would vote for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, but you might stay away from some guys like Mark McGuire or Sosa. And I actually totally agree with that. I would I would even vote for A-Rod on top of the Bonds and the Clemens. Have those opinions changed at all? And there are there any other PED guys that you might even consider if you had a Hall of Fame vote? The way I've looked at it, and it's only one way of looking at it, for example, Tom Verducci, who's very knowledgeable and I highly respect him, has simply said, I don't care if the only uh, information we have is that at the tail end of somebody's career, they yeah. used PEDs even once, I'm not voting for that player. That's the way he views it. I understand and I respect it. Uh, I'm trying to thread the needle a little bit, and in the case of Bonds especially, and Clemens to nearly the same extent, you can make the case that if they had retired in the late 90s, before, as best we understand it, they began using PEDs. 
if they had never had anything more powerful than a protein shake, they would have had huh. easy, overwhelming first ballot Hall of Fame credentials. Totally agree. We cannot say that for sure about Sammy Sosa. Yep. I actually think I feel bad about Mark McGuire. Mark McGuire, presumably clean, hit 49 home runs as a rookie. I think Mark McGuire, on his natural merits, had he stayed healthy, would have been a Harmon Killebrew type Hall of Famer. Not as great an all-round player as a Mays, an Aaron, or a healthy Mantle of his generation, but Killebrew was a heck of a home run hitter, and he rightly made the Hall of Fame. I think Mark McGuire could very well have fallen into that category, but we'll never know for sure. So I can't put Mark, I put him ahead of Sosa, but I can't put him in the same category as Clemens and Bonds, where I feel for sure that without PEDs, he would have had Hall of Fame credentials. In the case of Bonds, we're talking about a guy. If Barry Bonds had retired after the 1997 or 98 season, he's in the conversation as among the greatest all-round players ever. Power, mm-hmm. speed, stolen bases, gold gloves. Didn't have a great arm, but he won seven or eight gold gloves as a left fielder. Yeah. Uh, he was a great, great player. Arguably, along with Ken Griffey Jr., the greatest player of his generation. The greatest player of that last part of the 20th century, post-Aaron, post-Mays, that sort of thing. So he's there on his natural merits. To some, what he did subsequently and the steroid-aided records that he set disqualifies him. I'm trying to balance justice with a little bit of mercy, if that's the right word. So what I've said is I wouldn't have voted for him on the first ballot because first ballot still to some people carries a little bit extra beyond being uh, elected subsequent to that. Uh, But eventually I would have voted for Bonds and probably for Clemens. And Bob, I can't leave this interview without asking you a total fanboy question because you've been around for all of it. Who are your top five players in baseball history that you've seen? That I've seen. That you've seen. That Yeah, that, that makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, and now we're going to confine it to position players and leave Fantastic. pitchers out of it. Perfect. Mays and Aaron are an, an easy choice. Mays and Aaron, for sure. A healthy Mickey Mantle, I think, makes it into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at Mantle at his best. A lot of younger fans look at it and say, well, sure, he was a great player, he was a Hall of Fame player, but he can't possibly compare to Mays and Aaron. Look at Mantle and Mays through the mid-60s. Now, Willie was a, a greater outfielder. Um, Mickey was actually faster before the injuries uh, dragged him down. But Willie was a better base runner. He was a more daring base runner. But just offensively, look at the OPS. Look at the home runs per time at bat. It's crazy. Look at, look at the on-base percentages and the slugging percentages. Look at Mantle in the prime of his career. That was a shorter prime than Mays or Aaron, which is why Mays and Aaron rank above him, clearly above him historically. But Mantle at his best makes his way into that. And then I would think that Barry Bonds, uh, the natural Barry Bonds, is in there somewhere. And that fifth position, I, I, you know, I'm leaning toward outfielders and probably overlooking some people that deserve greater consideration. Um, so I, I haven't given this as much thought as perhaps I should have, but Ken Griffey Jr. would be somebody that, That's what I, was that say. I would consider. 
Um, and I, I'm, I'm leaving people out. It's just, it's just too difficult, but it's a damn good list. Those, the five people I've mentioned certainly are in the discussion. That's a damn good list, Bob. Absolutely. Bob, before we let you go, Tokyo 2020 slash 2021 coming up at the end of the month. I know that, you know, Mike Tirico is now the host for NBC, but you were the host for the Olympics for years. It, the Olympics is one of those times where everybody gets behind in the winter games watching bobsled or in the summer games watching steeplechase and being that true patriotic person and saying, yes, we need the gold medal in steeplechase. What was being there, being on hand for Olympics years after years like for you? Well, it's a different type of sports event. Yes, it's a sports competition at its heart. But it's also like a television miniseries. And as you say, there are people who will watch bobsled in the winter games or they'll watch pole vaulting in the summer games and they'll only watch it in the context of the Olympics. Yeah. You know, the audience for the World Series is larger than the audience for a regular season game or for the Super Bowl, larger than the audience for a regular season game. But people are still following it. They're still familiar with it. The Olympics, especially to an American audience, is unique in that respect. Even people who love Michael Phelps wouldn't necessarily tune in to watch Michael Phelps in some random swim meet outside the Olympics. That audience would be very small. Right. But the circumstances of the Olympics elevates all of it, competitively, dramatically, emotionally, all those things. And so as the host of the Olympics, you have to be mindful of that. You can't know every last detail about every last Olympian, especially in the summer games. We have more than 200 countries competing and now close to 11,000 total athletes. But you have to know the history of the Olympics. You have to know something about uh, the home nation and the host city. This year, Mike Tirico especially has the added burden of being fully familiar with all the complexities that have been imposed upon these Olympics by COVID and the protocols and the controversy as to whether or not it should take place or not. And then soon after that, there'll be a winter games in Beijing and that's problematic on its face because of China's human rights record and, and other issues. So Mike, just as I did in other circumstances, has to be aware of all the sports things that I just laid out, but also the issues outside sports that are part of the framing of those Olympics. Um, so you have to be aware of all of that. And then you have to also retain, even as you try to do a professional job, retain being receptive enough to the pure joy and emotion of the moment, because the viewer wants to feel as if the broadcaster is experiencing it to some extent. That doesn't mean you yeah. lose professional objectivity, but you have to be aware that there's something happening here that's different in its biggest moments than even the Super Bowl or the World Series or the NBA Finals, because this is a global event. And for most of these competitors, they step out of the shadows, four years of preparation, maybe for once in a lifetime, and at most for once every four years, step out of the shadows into the biggest possible spotlight. And that heightens the drama. You know, you lose the Super Bowl, training camp comes up in a few months. You lose the World Series, you're back at spring training. You get another crack at it. For Olympians, like I said, once every four years, maybe for many of them, once in a lifetime. It's amazing. Bob Costas, thank you so much for taking the time out of your Thursday. This was the best, Bob. Thank you so much. And hopefully, do you think Trout can make that top five later in his career? <laughs> oh, you know what? Mike, you know, Mike Trout sure would belong 
would belong in there. Yeah, you know, I was I I should have thought more about uh, active players. Yeah, Mike Trout would be in there, sure. I think it's Trout Griffey. It's a tough conversation. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe when Trout when it's all said and done, you think Trout, but I mean, Griffey Griffey was uh, a little Griffey. bit different. You <laughs> know, it was Ken Griffey Jr. Brian Kenny and I talked about this on the Major League Baseball Network. And I said that while some of the comps through their first 10 years do in fact favor Trout, if it's close, I look at it, and Kenny is a boxing guy, I look at it a little bit like a bout for the heavyweight championship. If it's close, the title holder keeps his crown. you got to knock the heavyweight champion out or win a clear-cut decision before you can take that crown. So so Trout's got to do a little more, in my mind, by that calculation before he surpasses Griffey. But when you look at the numbers, he's right there with him. It's like the LeBron Jordan conversation. I mean, we got to see LeBron maybe even pass Kareem, but LeBron, LeBron may be equally excellent in some respects as Jordan. He's not as great. Yeah. The impact on the game, on the culture, uh, the game globally, Jordan stands alone. He yeah. really does stand stand alone. Thank you guys for being so well prepared. It's good to talk with such knowledgeable people. Well, thank you for being willing to answer the well-prepared questions. Yeah, thank you, Bob. This is so much fun. There you go. Take care, guys. All the best. I'm still, I don't know if I'm, I'm not personally physically shaking. I'm right sweaty. Now. I'm sweaty. Yeah, yeah, I don't 100%. smell too hot right now. And the fan's blowing behind me, and I'm still sweating. Wow. I, he's right, though. We, we settled into that interview. I was good. When we saw that name <laughs> pop up on the Zoom call and we let him in. <laughs> and I was even thinking before, I was like, oh, this is, you know, you know, be, you know, we've been doing podcasting for, you know, a little bit now. Like, you know, we've had some people on, like, get ready. And then he came on and I was like, uh-uh. Yeah. It's Bob Costas. <laughs> you called him Mr. Costas. What's your rule referring to people as Mr. versus their first name? See, I don't even know. I don't know. The, it took me a know. while. Right? It, like, should we have done Mr. Costas? No. I like Bob because we're I boys like, now. I like Bob. Yeah, Bob's the guy. Yeah, Bob's the guy. Uh, it took me a while to come around on that. I think once I fully felt like an adult, I'm 23 years old. I don't know how much of an <laughs> adult I really am. But once I fully felt like an adult, I think that happened when I was 21 or maybe even 22 as recently as that. Or like I a felt, couple weeks ago. <laughs> maybe this morning. <laughs> yeah, this morning I felt like it. <laughs> I probably still don't feel like an adult. But uh, I feel like once I felt like an adult, I could refer to people by their first names. Absolutely. I feel like once, you know, I don't really, uh, cause I, I guess my feeling is like my last name is a fruit. So whenever it calls me someone, Mr. Apple, I'm always just like, Neh. I do like my last name, but I've always preferred just like first names. So I, I feel like in this day and age, you know, first names go, I don't, I don't know. I don't have an opinion on it. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Also, we're recording midday on Thursday the 15th for release on Friday the 16th. I told my mom that we were talking to Bob Costas this afternoon, and she just texted me literally right now while we record the outro. Costas appearance on Monk right now. Ha ha. I mean, Bob Costas has been on Cheers. He's been on. You ever seen Monk? No, I've never seen Monk. Oh, my God. Best show in TV history. Monk. Really? Yeah. Tony Shalhoub. Oh, my God. I don't even know who Tony Shalhoub is. Adrian Monk is the best character in television history. Really? You know another show I haven't watched? Entourage. Never seen it. 
I've never seen Entourage either. That's at the top of my list. Sopranos. Everyone's telling me Entourage would be perfect, and I just like I don't watch that much TV. Wow. Yeah, you gotta watch Monk, man. You gotta watch Monk. Okay. Also, the AL All Star team. They're twenty three and one in their last twenty four. Yeah, really good. What's good with that? I don't really. I mean, like the NL, the NL is better than the AL, but I guess the AL starters were a bit better. But the AL just always wins. I think the AL has been traditionally more top heavy with in terms of their individual talent. That's a good point. If you compare the starting lineups, but they go out after the third or fourth inning, and they still don't win. Yeah. I... I don't know. The offensive numbers boosted up in the AL. Because we're AL guys. You're White Sox, I'm Yankees. Yeah, we're AL guys. I never really asked Bob what his favorite – I wonder what his favorite team all time is. Sounds like a Yankee. He sounds like a Yankee Right? Guy. Right? Mickey Mantle. But I he's mean, been Yankees. all over, so I feel like maybe – I don't know. I don't know if he has a favorite team anymore, but growing up it was the Yankees, and we learned that, and we learned a lot more stuff from Bob freaking Costas, like you I mentioned. I liked his top him. five. I liked his top five a, a lot. top five. That was a good top five. I don't, I don't know if I would change any of them. If I was just thinking players that I would go back and watch in their prime, we saw Griffey when he was in Cincinnati. I saw Griffey with the White Sox for a minute. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, those years. I mean, those years he was starting to get, we saw him at the Futures game too. But when he was, when he was talking about his five, like he did his four. And then I, I thought to myself, I think the only five I put in is Ken Griffey, like literally thinking while he's talking. And then he immediately says Ken Griffey. I was like, oh, perfect list. Man. All right, let's call this thing uh, a show. Baseball back this weekend. Talk to you on Thursday to recap the uh, the start of the second half. See you guys. Thank you, everybody.